And I remember being in New York City and thinking to myself, do I really wanna do this? I'm like, I got all of these things. I got John on my case. I got this story I'm coming out with. I got 90 days. I got Samantha Murphy. I mean, she's no cakewalk, you know? And so, and I, I gotta eat plants. And I'm just thinking, but but if you if you put all of this risk in this one thing, think about the potential reward. And so the one thing it taught me was is to take more risk. And that's been always my my weak point in my life. I mean, if you look at my life, you'd be like, well, I guess you took risk. But I was trained at MIT as an engineer. And as engineers, they teach us to build bridges that don't fall down and build planes that don't fall out of the sky. And so what we end up doing in our personal lives, many engineers, is we engineer risk out of our life. And that's, maybe that's another way of, of being scared, as you would put it. And so for me now, with everyone around here and with everything we do in the future, I'm like, how can we put more risk in our lives, in the project, in the business? Because that's the only way we're gonna get these big payoffs. And so I could have fallen flat on my face on that race. I could have had a bike accident in my training. I mean, that would have really messed up everything we were doing here. But I also thought at the same time, life is about taking more risk than you think you can handle and then going for that quote unquote big reward. And I'm sure we make five more movies. Two of them aren't gonna work out how we wanted. But then again, maybe there would be some great lesson in here if I didn't finish this. I'm sure it would have made a bad movie, but if you look at fighters, they always say they learn the most with their losses, as hard they, as they are to swallow. So I think that's what I learned, is, is just to take more risk, have some more faith, um, and then try to see the bigger picture. What looks like a, a loss is sometimes a win. What looks like a win is sometimes a loss. <laughs> so uh, that's what I learned about money. It looked like a win, but it actually was alienating me and keeping me in this unhappy job, trying to get this digit that would show up in my bank account that had no correlation with um, me as a human being. That was Brian Rose of London Real, and this is the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. Welcome back to the show, you guys. I'm Jess. I'm your host, and this is episode 131. And this episode totally rocks. Beach and I are quite honored to have been connected with Brian through a YTP listener. Shout out to Rob, who felt that Brian would align perfectly with us. And all I have to say is, Rob, dude, you nailed it. Thank you. Thank you for being the catalyst for this very connected conversation. Brian Rose grew up right here in San Diego with more than a twinkle of the American dream in his eye. He was a little capitalist as a kid, engaging in business, forming dreams of his future, and chasing dollar signs. Brian landed himself the ideal American dream education at MIT in Boston, where he was trained as an engineer. His postgraduate life took him to the epitome of where money was being made hand over fist. Brian found himself on Wall Street and living in the East Village of New York City. Working hard and playing hard was the recipe. Making the big bucks ruled his day, while drugs and alcohol took his nights. Caught up in the lifestyle of a high roller, Brian didn't realize how close he was living to the edge until one night he almost took himself over to the other side. A frequent and secret heroin user, Brian stopped breathing one night, and although most of us would believe that this was his wake-up call, it wasn't. He still had some darkness to explore. Sometimes our environment is just too strong for us to make change in our life, and so changing our environment becomes the first thing that is required for us to change. After realizing that he had to remove himself from the fast lane and regain control of his life, Brian left New York behind, 
He left heroin behind and moved to London where he continued his finance career as an investment banker. Every quarter he would get paid and every quarter he would watch his bank balance rise, which by all interpretation of the American dream should have correlated with his happiness balance. But it did not. And in a moment, staring out the window of Richard Branson's chalet, Brian felt the weight of living a life he hated. He hated his career and himself And it was time to change once again, and Brian walked away from it all. The greedy banker needed connection in his life. Enter London Real in 2011, Brian's new media big risk venture built from a need to inspire and transform. You see, as so many of us paint this picture of a world that has no hope, Brian believes that humanity is full of hope and that our freedom and answers lie within. London Real was the platform to share this message, but as BJ and I know so intimately, putting out a powerful and inspired message into the world is not always met with immediate receptivity. And so Brian navigated the humble beginnings of London Real, the inner and outer resistance and the self-doubt that had him questioning his every step. He was unraveling his attachment to money and his materialistic shell was quickly falling away as he became acquainted with a new kind of currency. Fulfillment, joy, and connection now filled his days and fueled him to keep going. Because of his blind faith and relentless pursuits, London Real has amassed over half a million subscribers and its episodes and movies have been viewed over 50 million times. This story is a testament of the power of steadfastness. It's the internal and eternal struggle of our hearts that say, keep going, and the financial docs that say, walk away. Brian is a natural businessman, a part of him he's been cultivating since he was young. But most recently, he's birthed a new identity that falls so perfectly in line with his warrior lifestyle, and that is the role of an endurance athlete. Following an episode on London Real, Brian was tasked by his guest, the one and only John Joseph, to not only race Ironman 70.3 Chattanooga with him, but to do it on a plant-based diet. 90 days from start to finish, Brian got a baptism by fire into the world of endurance training. Brian's action-packed and extremely cathartic race ramp-up was captured by his crew at London Real and recently released as a full-length movie called Iron Mind. It follows the stories of John and Brian as their friendship deepens and things begin to get real, which leads Brian to open up a long-kept bag of secrets, not only to the world, but to his wife for the very first time. So, what do you guys say? You want to dive in? Let's dive into our chat with former miserable millionaire turned joyful connector and one of the snazziest dressers we've had on the show, Brian Rose. I love the divine alignment of how it came together that, you know, we did an interview with a triathlon coach in Boulder and one of his athletes heard it. And now that athlete is assisting you with uh, promoting Iron Mind and getting the getting the message out there. And then he's been listening to the podcast and thought that we would be a great fit. And the more I've binged on you in the last, you know, 48, 72 hours, there's a great alignment there. And I love that when you kind of sit back and you do the work for the sake of the work, you show up every day and you, you do what your heart is calling you to do, that these amazing alignments come in. And, you know, I don't know if I could have put together a better plan for us to connect. 
Yeah, no, it, and that's why I encourage you know all of the the students I have and anyone I meet really to to really start broadcasting themselves because you know most people are, are they live in fear about what other people will say and they they wouldn't even put up a selfie video on their own Facebook page because they're worried about the criticism and the judgment. But if you can get over that and really start broadcasting your ideas that come from a core mission and a real statement of value. Um, and do it when no one's watching, when no one cares, when there's crickets. You know, we I used to get a hundred views on YouTube and uh, per episode, and and just keep doing it because you you have to, you have to get that stuff off your chest. It's amazing the kind of connections that happen. And you know, I I've been doing this for seven years now, and the first three years there was no revenue, there was no nothing, and I would I would look myself in the mirror right around New Year's Eve every year and just say, Brian, what the hell are you doing? And then I would look at my life and say, well, wait a second, you have more friends, you have better connections, you've never felt so good. This something is, this is changing you in a way that you must pursue this, even, uh, even though it makes no financial sense, everyone thinks you're out of your mind, um, and so you got to keep doing it and do it another year and do it another year. And so, and, and everything started changing for me. I became a better person. I felt like everyone was watching me and I had to step up and do these things, even though they didn't make, you know, sense to the normal world. Right. And so that's the test. And that pushes us all to do the right thing for the right reasons. And if you, if you stay to that core, magical things happen. And like you get connected with amazing people like you guys and the people that come in my studio and John Joseph and, you know, if you had told me seven years ago when I walked out of one of these buildings behind me as a banker in London that I would be making a movie about uh, running, a, you know, a Ironman 70.3 on a plant-based diet at 47 years old with some crazy punk, you know, rocker, you know, and talking about my story of addiction to the public, I would have punched you in the face. I would have said, that's crazy. Um, because the old bank banker, selfish uh, Brian, who was only worried about his bank account, would have never thought about that. But this this whole phenomenon of putting myself out there has just massively changed my life. It's it you know I wouldn't even be a parent today if it wasn't for broadcasting. It's a it, it I wouldn't. There's no way. I I have two sons now, one and two years old, and I'm 47. That would have never happened because I would have never opened up my heart to the world, let alone another woman, and let alone this stuff. So. You know, there's something powerful about what we're doing, and um, I think it's a way of just living the most fulfilling life possible, just the simple act of broadcasting. So compliments to you guys for pushing through resistance. There's resistance every day with this stuff. <laughs> yeah, just not externally, too. It's that inner, like, doubt. It's that doubt that keeps, oh, like, yeah. should I be doing it or should I not? And then you look externally, and those factors out there are not helping you out whatsoever. So that's, like, that's why you need to go inside like deeper yeah. and deeper inside. I know John Joseph talks about that a lot. Like he's done some serious inner reflection. It's like getting down to that depth. Yeah. yeah let's, you have to go in. Yeah. <laughs> let's have, Oh, you have, you have to go in. I mean, I, I believe it's why we're here. I believe, I believe just through my own self discovery and this knowing now this embodiment that, yeah, we are actually all one, you know, and, and your pain and suffering is my pain and suffering. And, and the guy, you know, down the street, who's yelling at people out of his car window for crossing the crosswalk, like his suffering is my, I, I understand that more than ever. And I, and I understand that, that, that deepening that connection 
and transmuting whatever that energy is that's dark or fearful or negative back into love through my own inner work, through my own deep inner work and healing, that that's actually making a huge impact in the world. But that we all have to live these unique journeys, I think, in the most authentic way that we can, you know, like, and I love John Joseph. Let's talk about John Joseph for a moment because we know him. We did an interview with him, like really right at the beginning of our podcast. It's like, who are we? I think he was like 22 or something. It's like, who are we to be sitting in John Joseph's apartment in New York City? You know, like, oh my God, does he, does he know how unworthy we are? Does he know that we're nobody? I remember sitting in his, in his living room and being like, oh man, I am so not in control of this conversation. Like this, I just got to let this guy go. And when he's done, he'll be done. And that's what everybody loves about him is just his passion and his authenticity. And so if I was to look at two people on paper that couldn't look any different, the two of you living in New York City at the same time, you and your three-piece suit walking on Wall Street, right? But you're living in the same part in New York City. And John Joseph, right? Right. Like at that time, you weren't supposed to align like you had to do that deep inner work that you've both done that brought you together. And I love um, in Iron Mind, like you see the two of you sitting across from each other in the set of Iron Reel. And he's kind of like slouched down in his chair with his Iron Man T-shirt on, his hat on backwards. And there you are with your nice shirt on and your vest. And it's like, again, still on paper, it looks so different. But your connection is so deep and it takes you on this journey that you didn't know that you were going to go on, that there was a master plan in action. Yeah. No, it's so true. I mean, we opened the movie with me and John in this real uncomfortable uh, position because he had just come on to London Real. I never met him in my life. And I had known a few things about him. And I was like, what the hell is this? But he was fascinating. But we don't know each other. And now I remember we were previewing the movie and someone said, that's really uncomfortable. Why do you put it there? But we're trying to show people that literally, you know, a a year ago I hadn't met John yet. And so again, two, two people couldn't be any different. We happened to share the same, you know, few blocks of area in the East village in the late nineties and early two thousands. But again, you couldn't find two polar opposite people. And, and just like you said, we probably shouldn't have met back then. Um, and we both had to do our own thing. He probably would own. have like robbed you and stolen your watch. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or maybe would have smoked crack together. I don't know. Yeah. Or you, you could know? have done that. You probably partied. Could happen. So, you know, and, and it's true. And, and so we all have to kind of go through our own journeys and I kind of had to be the, the greedy banker back then. And I had to go through my own addiction and overdose in over in order for even London Real to 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 exist and for me to go into it so passionately and so appreciatively and, and to stay in it through the hard times. I don't think I would have done that if I hadn't have seen the darker sides. And so, yeah, but with my director here, we really wanted to show these deep contrasts in this movie of John's life versus my life. And there's a there's a guy in the movie named Dr. Gabor Mate, who's a specialist on addiction and childhood trauma. And actually, he was just here last week and he watched the movie and He had a lot of interesting things to say about me and John. And he said, Brian, at the end, you discount your trauma as a child because you weren't a foster child and sexually abused and living on the street like John. But he said, Brian, your trauma is just as real as John's trauma. And he said, we all need to remember that about all of ourselves. A lot of times we discount our trauma, but you know, anything can be traumatic. It's how, it's kind of how you process it afterwards. And if you can talk about it and, or if you bury it deep down inside, 
anything can be a traumatic event. And so kind of comes back to what you said. We all kind of are one. We all struggle with this, these human emotions and these challenges in our life. And we kind of all learn from everyone's struggle. And that's why John Joseph on the, on the outside doesn't seem like he could relate to, to most people who watch him. But once you listen to what he's saying, these are fundamental human lessons um, about really embracing those struggles, learning lessons, not giving up, keep fighting. And that's why we premiered this movie in London. We had 200 people in the audience. And it's always funny because we spend months making these movies and we, we think we got it right. But just to see the audience reaction and they are laughing, like literally LOLing when John's cracking his jokes in the beginning. And he swears so much. We're like, oh my God, John's going to alienate everybody. But no one cared. They're laughing. And he's a, he's a critical comic element to this movie, which can get very serious with the training and the uh, confessions. And John's there just to, you know, make light. And you guys know what he's like in person. He's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, he's just, you know, he's a, he's a teacher. You know, that's what my trainer, Samantha, said in the movie. He's just a teacher and he's been a great mentor to me. And I, I was so lucky that he took me through this journey and saw inside of me on that interview that I had unfinished business, that I had some demons. And if it wasn't for John Joseph, I would still have this secret. I would still have not told my wife this secret, let alone, you know, hundreds of thousands of people around the world now that know that the slick banker and the guy on London Reel that wears a tie is a former heroin addict that overdosed in, in New York City. And I'm so glad I can say that now. And now it's a badge of, of, of honor and courage. <laughs> now I can use it as a source of light. I always thought it would be this big black hole that would never serve a purpose. And now I see that actually all that pain is, is worth something because now it can make other people see that that their pain is, is potentially a source of, of their light. So it's, it's been, it's been an amazing experience. To be yeah. A part of it, you know, it's funny. I've, I've struggled similarly in the fact that I grew up in an upper middle-class home on Cape Cod. You know, my mother yeah. used to hug me so long because she just couldn't get the love in me enough. Right. Like my parents didn't go through divorce, but when I was six months old, I had an aunt that drank herself to death. Okay. And through some of this deep inner work and this particular forgiveness meditation that a, a podcast guest had actually gifted to me, and I now practice from time to time, in this deep forgiveness meditation, I was taken back to six months old and had this unbelievable unveiling of trauma of why wasn't I enough to keep you alive? Why, yeah. why, why wasn't an innocent six month old baby who was reportedly very happy and very much a light in the world? Why wasn't I enough? So I didn't have like, I, my parents didn't kick me out. I didn't live on the streets. I grew up in a house where my mother taught me about presence at a very young age and how the present moment is all we have. And of course, this is what I teach now. And um, we had so much joy and love and we were always taught to, that we can be whoever we want to be and we could marry whoever we wanted to marry. If it was a man or a woman, if they were green or blue or black, it didn't matter. And so who am I to say that I suffered? But I suffered deeply from a very young age. And, and when I listen to your story and, and, I, see, and I see your the unfolding of you 
you know, going to MIT and being such an achiever and going to Manhattan. And we're about the same age. We're 46, you're 47. So we grew up in that Wall Street, right? Like, at, like BJ was yeah. going to be an advertising exec on Madison <laughs> Avenue. I mean, that's how okay. it was all going to yeah. unfold, right? And it was important. It was it was the time of making a lot of money and, and that was your worth. And, and um, but you didn't have your happiness. And so you had everything that everyone said you're supposed to have, but you didn't have that happiness. And, and I think um, Gabor Mate really nailed it when he talks about your parents divorcing and why weren't you enough to keep them together? Yeah. That maybe uh, there was this... Start, when he starts talking about childhood trauma, it's like, I think everyone says, whoa, wow. Yeah, because, yeah, you know, our... Me. Our belief systems, like our core belief systems are pretty much solidified by the age of five. Mm, I mean, yeah. it's wild yeah. what we carry and cover up and don't even know it's there. And that's why I think that deep inner work is so important because when we can get into that stillness when, or whatever it is, like for John, it's his chanting, right? It's his devotional practice. For me, it's stillness and meditation um, as well as endurance sports. You know, I've been in, we've both been endurance athletes for many years now. And as you know, endurance sports tears you down. So you have to be oh, yeah. raw. Let's back up because I want to get into your, I mean, we've, we've brushed upon your story, but really what I want to pinpoint is what we know as people is like, gosh, we know that people can be millionaires and they can still be unhappy. But for somebody who's looking at a negative balance in their bank account, that doesn't even make sense. It's like, how yeah. could you not be happy when you are achieving all this money? So in your in your memory, in the essence of what you can remember back then, and in hindsight with the wisdom that you have now, what was it that was keeping you from that, that joy that really is our essence? Yeah, look, it's a great question. So, you know, I grew up in San Diego, you know, so uh, in California. And for me, ever since I was a kid, I don't know, for me, you know, the American dream of, you know, making money was just something that always was important to me for some reason. And I was kind of a little capitalist as a kid. And, you know, we were kind of upper middle class. It wasn't, we didn't need anything, but for me, I guess I always just equated this, you're successful, you make money, and that means you, you matter. And I kind of chalk it up to the American dream, but, you know, I'll own that as well. You know, it was my little fantasy. And so, you know, I was pursuing most of my life and it wasn't until my early thirties where I could finally look at a balance in the bank and said, okay, I finally got there. So until that happened, I could always say, I'm not happy because I don't have this. Um, and I, I've had a lot of guests on the show. One of them was a, a producer for many years of some very uh, peop, uh, important people in Hollywood, including Janis Joplin. And he said, Brian, the, the, the darkness in them that makes them want to be famous is never going to be um, satiated by the fame. And that's why you see a lot of the stars, they just, they can never find it. And the same is true with money, I think. You know, we, we believe that that will solve everything. And I know when you don't have money, it's like, that sounds like it probably will. But I got to a point as a banker and um, I used to come home every quarter and they would pay us quarterly and I'd see my balance go up. And since I'm an engineer, I watched it for like two years and every quarter I realized I didn't get any happier. And I was like, something's not working here, the way I was told it should work and the way I believed to my core. Um, and I looked at my life and I was like, wow, you're all alone. You're kind of drinking yourself to sleep every night. Um, you're not connected. You don't feel worth. You're very cynical about life. And, and, and then I happened to take a meditation course on a whim and 
after about 30 days, I was able to look at Brian and say, this is, this guy's, he's just doing stupid things. And it, it no longer logically made sense. And so I walked out of my job, um, and, uh, about a week later and I left my, my job of nine years here in London and I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was uh, fascinated, um, by Joe Rogan at the time who was podcasting. This is eight years ago now, and nobody was really doing it. And I just started doing that probably for my own therapy, really. I mean, the first episodes is just Brian talking on camera, which is a big deal. And I think I just, I started to become connected. And I think that was the thing I was always missing. I felt just disconnected and substance abuse can kind of also, you know, a lot of alcoholics feel disconnected, which is kind of why they go after that pursuit. And so that kind of compounded it for me. And I think a lot of people think that money will make you happy because we see people with money doing things. But we also see people with fame doing things, and we know that a lot of those things end in, in suicide and problems. And so, you know, until you are happy with yourself, <laughs> nothing is going to help. And the only way really of going there is to kind of, like you said, do that deep work, spend time with yourself. And so that can come through all sorts of ways, uh, you know, meditation, some type of connection, plant medicine, and I've talked about that. And as I discovered endurance sports, I had no idea what was gonna happen. But when I'm on mile 21 kilometers of a run and I'm pouring down streaming tears, and that happened a lot, <laughs> I'm like, wow, this stuff really works. Yeah, it, and, I, and I thought I had already done a lot of work on myself, but I was really impressed with what the endurance did for the brain uh, and for peace. Yeah, I think if you have a willingness, if you already have a willingness for like going in and seeing what's brewing under the surface, and then you pair that with endurance sports, you're on a fast track, you know, and I've always when I started meditating and working with my teacher, I was already an Ironman. I'm the daughter of a Marine. I'm a natural born seeker, overachiever, very, very disciplined. And you're very disciplined as well. You've got that background in martial arts and, you know, you have been an achiever in, in the material world. And, um, and I said to him, I said, I feel like I'm on a fast track. And he's like, oh, make no mistake. You are on a fast track. And I'm like, that to me, huh, that's a drug, right? Like I can fast track this this deep inner spiritual work, I can fast track my evolution, whether or not that's bullshit in the, in the world of spirituality, I don't know, but boy, it works for me and it gets me sitting on that meditation pillow, especially at the beginning when I didn't want to. You've already kind of got this, you've already had this bit of this self-discovery, right? John Joseph comes into your life and I think that the extreme, the, the extreme nature of John Joseph was probably in direct relationship to the, the experience explosiveness that you needed to kind of drop this bag of secrets over the edge, right? Because when John Joseph challenges you to something, you don't say no. Yeah. You don't say no. And also John <laughs> is so open about his story. You know, right. he, first of all, you know, John, you know, John, first of all, you know, he's an alpha male and, 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 uh, you know, a lot of males these days, when they see an alpha male being vulnerable, it's really powerful combination. You know, we're really drawn to it because we're kind of taught as kids that we can't do that. So when you see John talking about his sexual abuse, which took him years to put the pen to paper to write about it, you know, it empowers you. Also, when John challenges you to do something, like you said, what are you going to say? No, you um, can't say so, no. <laughs> yeah. It's like this perfect storm of events that, that makes you want to, first of all, talk about your past. I mean, there's a part in the movie where John and I are sitting on a sofa 
And, you know, that's, it's all real. And the first time I'm ever publicly talking about the things that happened to me in New York and I'm crying and that could probably only happen with it, with a John Joseph, because I know he's gone there and I know he's been through things and publicly talked about it. And, um, so yeah, it was just an amazing combination. And also when John says, okay, we're going to do this hundred percent plant-based and gives me kind of the tough guy version of that. It's again, it's very, it's hard to ignore that because he comes at it from an angle that maybe most people don't expect or never heard from. And he's, you know, hard talking New Yorker. And yet I am this guy. And also when he introduces the spirituality and he does it via Hare Krishna, but whether it, but like he says, he's like, the religion doesn't matter. It's the spirituality. And again, you've got John who's got the street cred and even the addiction cred and the down and out cred and the punk rock cred. And now he's talking about real spirituality. Again, it's a beautiful gateway to, you know, I think everyone, but also males in particular who are always kind of taught, yeah, well, the alpha guys don't talk about that stuff. So um, a lot of uh, great ways to connect with people with that John Joseph character. And, you know, I got to watch it happen in real time with me. Um, Luckily, I was kind of curious about those things um, and open to them. And then with the training and everything that happened, it just all unfolded. And I was living out those emotions. There's a point in the movie where he brings me to New York. He challenges me to race the Ironman 70.3. I haven't accepted yet, but he has a trainer, Samantha Murphy, who puts me through this eight-minute um, bike test, which I guess is a thing. I don't know. Oh, it's, it's a thing. Oh, it's and a you thing. got off because eight okay, minutes is short. My- yeah, I know. I was like, holy shit, BJ makes us do it for 20 minutes. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm like, I can, you know, I train, I can handle this. And I, I walk out, I don't know how to wear bike shoes and I'm, I guess I'm not wearing the right kit or anything, you know? And yeah, she and calls you out there. on that right away. Yeah, She's like, she you she... are dressed like a not non-triathlete. A, a non-triathlete. It's awesome though. I love it. <laughs> yeah. It was like, so it was like, you know, it was all, we all shot that into courses all real time and my crew is there. And then she puts me through this test and about, you can't necessarily tell about five minutes in, I'm crying. I'm crying on that bike. And, um, my crew is like shocked. They've been with me from the start and they're like, I've never seen you cry. So I'm going through all these emotions, New York's bringing it up. And then as I train for the next three months, like I said, I'm having these runs and tears are going down my cheeks and I'm, I'm processing everything that happened to me in New York 16 years ago, which like we all do, we bury the shame of our past or the trauma, like you said, with your aunt. And again, it's these things that we've never resolved. That's what kind of causes the trauma. You know, John, as Gabor Mate said to me in the recent episode, he says it wasn't necessarily the sexual abuse that John suffered. It's because he had to keep it in silence. That's where that trauma breeds. And so for me, these events from 16 years earlier where I'm like, they're not affecting me. They were affecting me. And so I'm processing this on these long runs and these long bike rides and these strenuous things. And I'm uh, just, uh, like I said, crying and being, uh, sometimes I'm super grateful and these having these highs. And so doing that through the process of training for the half Ironman was, yeah, was, was really powerful. And I got, I got, I got, I gained a great new respect for the sport, for endurance training. Um, and now I've incorporated a lot of that into my training. Um, and then of course the diet was part of it too. So yeah, really weird, perfect storm of things. Was it, Brian, was it ever too much? Like, cause it's all at once. You're changing your diet. You're changing your sport. Cause you're a high intensity interval person. Yeah. Um, your lifestyle, you're going into the past. Was it ever too much to combine all these things? Cause I know a lot of people are saying like, I can never do that. I can never just be an all or nothing. Like, 
normally people will transition, maybe add one thing or remove one thing, but you went all in and was it ever too much for you? And if it wasn't, what, what is it that pulls that you pull from to get you through all of that? Yeah, look, great question. It, it was a lot to do. There obviously wasn't much time to train. Um, I also was kind of in a tough situation as in it's hard for me to back out because I had gone there and filmed with John and it was kind of on. So that, that was kind of a blessing if you think about it. And even on the day of the race, I, I was kind of telling people I'm probably, I've probably got the easiest race because everyone's watching and I've got all of this energy and everybody wants me to finish. If I was just doing it and three people knew I was there, maybe it would have been a different race, but I felt like I had crazy energy there. So that was good. I won't lie about 45 days in, and you can see this in the movie, you know, I'm having this a couple hard weeks where, you know, the sessions are relentless. I mean, I, I think I was training, I think 13 different sessions per week, you know, so it was three <laughs> swimming sessions. It was all on my static bike followed by runs on the treadmill. And if, if you haven't tried that before, I'm guessing most people here watching probably would be familiar with that. But for anyone who isn't, you know, try getting on a treadmill after an hour static bike, your, your legs are like jello. And it, it's, it's a, it takes conditioning mental and physical to start understanding what that that T2 transition is like. And so, um, you know, that with the, the diet and then with all the pressures of being filmed and being at work, I, I got, I got to be grumpy Brian a little bit and you can see it there. And I, and I, maybe I'm overtrained, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. So it got to be where if I wasn't doing this maybe, uh, for London real and as a film, maybe it would have been easy for me to duck, to duck out. But, you know, luckily I kind of couldn't. So that got me through to be honest. And I was getting a lot of support and we had live Facebook group going on. And there was a woman in a walker in our Facebook group that did a, a 5k on a walker. <laughs> I, I kid you not. And she posted, it was like a time-lapse video of her coming to the finish. <laughs> and she's like, you inspired me to do this. And I was like, okay, I mean, there's crazy things happening. So, um, and again, I also, I had, I had played with the, the plant-based diet before I'd done like meatless Mondays, but the truth is you kind of have to go all in on that and you have to just say, you know what, I'm going to do this. And my, my wife, you know, she's a great cook and she struggled in the first few weeks. She's like, I don't know what to cook. But once we got through that, she's like, actually, I, I've fallen in love with plants again. And actually we have more options. We're doing Thanksgiving in two weeks and it's, it's a, a plant-based Thanksgiving. So, you know, and, and, and it can be super creative and it can be super enjoyable. Um, but I kind of had to push through the first couple of weeks when it might've been easy, you know, to cheat. So, um, yeah, and hopefully we showed that in the movie because it wasn't all roses. No, sure. and it's, you know, you need you need to see that because, you know, we have a team of athletes that we coach and we see that. We see when they're just like, I don't want to train. Like, I don't, I don't even, you know, we, all of a sudden training peaks is like a bunch of red blocks. And we're like, all right, what's going, what's going on with this guy? Like everything yeah. was going great. Two days ago, it was all green. And it's like, sometimes it just, it gets to be too much. Cause it's just, it's like you said, it's relentless. And so 45 days into a 90 day intense training block, which is what you were doing. You weren't just doing a 90 day intense training block. You were transitioning your diet. You were dropping your you know, uh, decade old bag of secrets out to the world. Like all of this stuff was happening, like super, super intense. And we all get brought to our knees. And that's one thing that I just love about endurance sports is that no matter what, 
it will bring me to my knees. And so through the merging of yoga and mindfulness and meditation in with endurance sports from where I started to where I am now, it's, you know, I'm about to run an, an ultra marathon next week and uh. I know that it's going to be tough. I know that there's going to be times where my body is going to have a lot of sensation in it. But for me, it's all the mental game out there now. It's how I'm going to have the highs and lows on the course and off the course. I'm going to have highs and lows in my life. The waves of life are going to keep coming because that's the nature of this world, this physical world that we live in. But it's, you know, it's what is our response to what's happening and when I first started endurance sports and I would be out on a run and just at that point where, you know, you're just having crap workout after crap workout and you're crying and you're pissed. And my response to that was just like, you know, more of anger. And but I believe that that was just this festering you know, energy that was just stuck inside me from so many years of the suffering coming out, right? And everything that we experience, the frustration, the anger, the sadness, the joy, it's all important on our props, yeah. on our process because it's all telling us something. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's so true. And, and, uh, yeah, you know, that's the, that's kind of, you kind of have to be thankful for those hard times, you know, oh. um, and it's, but it's, it's hard in the process. And that's the way the movie opens. Like John says, like, you know, we go through these struggles in life and at the time it might not be so nice, but it's how we grow and it's how we have this character. And so, yeah, I mean, the beauty of what you guys do is get people through those struggles and the, the moments they feel the worst are the ones that they will cherish one day. It's this weird dichotomy. Uh, and like you said, all those things you process, you know, if you look at it from like the Dow standpoint of people I've had on the show, it, you know, it's all, it's nothing good or bad. It's just you kind of processing these things. And then endurance racing is a great way of just kind of getting there, you know, because I wouldn't have gone there without these tests. And as John opens up the movie, you know, life gives us tests. And so it's a great way to engineer in those tests. So I was kind of grateful to be processing that anger. And at one point in the movie, Samantha says, you know, Brian, you have some anger issues. And it was really, you know, I watched that in the premiere and I'm watching myself and like, she's right. I, that's how I deal with a lot of things. And now I can see that and hopefully try to process it differently. And you said something else about waves and this is something Rich Roll told me and it was great to have Rich on the movie in the movie and he came to the show later and he said, "Brian, you know, what you know from the training is is that anytime you feel a certain way, once you've experienced training after a while, you know that that's temporary." And I'm sure you see this with a lot of the athletes you train is that when you're a newbie, you don't know that. <laughs> so when you get to this wall, you're like, okay, well, the rest of the race is going to be like this. So I might as well stop. Yes. When you first, yeah. But when you first start out, you don't have the mindset you just described. Like you're going to go into this ultra and you're going to be like, you know what? I'm going to be tested, but I know it's a mental game and I know I can get through that mental game. But when you're the newbie, you don't know that that's the mental test. And so that's why it's the great growth opportunity. But for a lot of people, you know, you get to that point. And I had times in that race where I got to where, where it's just, this is just really bad. But I'm just trying to think. But it won't necessarily be that bad in 10 minutes. It could be joyous in 10 minutes. And so it's like just keep putting one foot in front of the other, a lot like life, and just keep doing what you're doing. Point your North Star in the right direction and grind this, grind that next step out. So, yeah, it's, it's a good perspective from, from the endurance race. Yeah, and I have to tell you that going from 70.3 to full Ironman, 
that just gets even better because I mean, you, you even have it on your on your lanyard around the medal is like anything is possible. And if there's one thing that Iron Man taught me, it's that anything is possible. And the beautiful thing is that for me, yoga, the physical practice of yoga came way before Iron Man. You know, I've been practicing yoga since the 1990s, early 1990s, and now comes in endurance sports. And I did the whole progression. You know, I did the the sprint and then the Olympic and then the half Ironman and then, um, you know, no pressure, Brian, but I was like, I can't just be a half Ironman. Like, how can I just I be a half? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, but be careful of who you say that to. I remember saying that to somebody in the pool one day and he's like, well, I'm a half Ironman and I'm really happy. And I was like, <laughs> no, it's just my journey, yeah. dude. It's not your journey. But once I got into the longer distance, I realized that Ironman and yoga brought me to the same place. It tore me down in very, very different ways to this place where I had to go beyond body and mind. I went into this new realm where I was able to harness, just so effortlessly harness a new, very pure type of energy that allowed me to keep putting one foot in front of the other, that allowed me to realize like this is temporary and anything can change in the next five minutes. You know, my first Ironman, I remember Ironman Coeur d'Alene in 2008 being on the run and being like, wow, I feel so bad. Like, I wonder if this is how it feels when you die. That's how bad I feel right now. And I wonder if I will die. And I felt like a fear come up. And then I felt this part of me that was like, well, I don't know if that's going to happen, but I'm going to trust. I'm going to keep going forward. I'm not going to hold myself out of this experience. If I'm supposed to die here, then I'm going to, like, I'm going to, I'm going to be okay no matter what. And it was such a defining moment for me to be like, that. I was at that point physically where I thought, my God, I... I wonder if this is what dying feels like. And I came back. I ended up coming back, you know, and, and finishing the race strong. And um, that's what I love about just this metaphor. You know, it's, it's so cliche, but this metaphor of, of endurance sports and half Ironman and Ironman, I feel like once you hit that half Ironman distance, like a lot of magic is going to happen there because you do really start to get those waves. It's like you're signing up and you're paying to get massive waves of life thrown at you. And you've yeah, signed up yeah. to do it. Yeah, no, it's a great thought. So, you know, funny enough, on my my run of the half Ironman, I kept thinking, uh, how could I be running a marathon right now? I kept <laughs> thinking, like, you know, the Ironman people are crazy. Because as I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, it was like 90-some degrees. It was May, May in May. And I, you know, just on the bike and the swim and I'm on this run and just my stomach hurts so bad. And at one point we're running on a highway and all these cars are backed up and like you can see the heat coming off the highway and you had to do like a loop too. And I was just like, and I've been used to running in kilometers and they come by a lot quicker. And I look down and it's like mile four and I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is just, and I'm like, how do people run a marathon at the end of a double? I was just, I was actually in awe of the full Ironman finishers at that point. And then it was just a brutal, painful run. And I told people then, I'd love to tell you I had some transcendental moment and spoke to the gods, but that run was pain and it was one foot in front of the other. Um, and maybe that, that's probably the way it should be. And then of course, right after the race, John says, we're doing the full. And of course, Samantha, my trainer says, we're doing the full. And so, you know, right after that, that's what they're thinking. And so I, of course, have that final conversation with John about, you know, uh, you know, also about challenges and goals and, 
you know, why they're there and why we put them in front of us. And so I just wanted to put that whole question out there as well. Um, and I'm a goal oriented person. And I was thinking about doing the full with John in November in Florida. And then Samantha said, you know, Brian, do you, are you, do you really want to do it? Cause she said the full Ironman is not twice as hard as the half. She said, it's more like four times as hard. And I was struggling with the bike. The static bike was my Achilles heel. Going in for the static bike is where I got real grumpy. And, um, and so she's like, Brian, this is a lot more work. And so part of me was like, I'm going to do this and get it to John. But then I decided not to. So that's still out there on the horizon for me. And when I see people do the fulls, I'm always just like, wow, that is some next level stuff um, where I can only imagine how deep that you have to dig. Mentally, I know I could do it when I train, but going through it will probably be one of the most challenging mental experiences of my life if and when I do it. Uh, so, so yeah, so, well, B, it, and BJ's done what, 14, 15 yeah. of them. I mean, and he's, you know, second in the U S right now for his age group. I mean, this guy and doing it all on plants. So you can probably speak to it more than I can, but, um, what is it that, you know, because the contrast is going to be deep, right? You don't have to worry about digging your own grave because it's going to be dug for you through the training and on race day. But what is the equivalent of the joy that, that comes? Oh, it's, in? yeah, it's so amazing. And each, and I just had an athlete do Florida too, it was his first one. And just okay. the appreciation and joy that, he, and self-reflection he's had on the journey to get to this point and understand that he had to show up and be consistent every day. Like, to do something. And it's, it's certainly not high interval and in, in training at all. Mm -mm. It's slogging the miles and it's, it's putting in the work so that when you get to that finish line, when you get to that finish stretch, like at a half Ironman, it's great. There's people there, you're cheering, you're finishing in the daylight. But when you're finishing at night and Mike Riley's <laughs> calling your voice and you've oh done goodness. whatever, 13 hours, 14 <sighs> hours, and you're out there. When you come across that finish line, it is the most amazing feeling to slap high fives to all those people cheering you on and to know that every day that you showed up in training, that, that the suffer fest, the, the getting real all comes to this point. And, and I saw it a little bit on that, on, in the movie, Iron Minds in that 70.3, you came across, you kind of like, we're like, all right, all right, all right. And then it was like, the smile came and then the emotion came. Yeah. And it just floods. So, and I'm getting chills now, but that, <laughs> so that feeling, Brian, is elevated a hundred times when you, when you yeah. come across an, a, a full Ironman. So, and you know, it's like, it's like the lady with the walker, right? It's like, she gives you no excuse. And so I didn't, I didn't have a plan to do an Ironman. And I was at BJ's first Ironman. Um, and I was talking to this couple, this elderly couple. And I said, who are you out here for? Because when you're a spectator, you just, it's the connection is so deep because you've got a person you love out there and you're praying that they're going to be okay. And the whole day as a spectator is about hurry up and wait. They're coming in, they're coming in. The, there they go. Now, and then you wait, right? It's a very emotional day for the spectator. And I'm talking to this couple and I said, who are you here for? Who's your person? And it was their son. And a year ago he had, you know, a year ago at the time he had been in a very horrible uh, motorcycle accident and they uh, basically gave him like a 1% chance to live through the night. They, they wow. last rights, the whole thing. And sure. the next day he, he comes out of it, right? He, he wakes up and they say, well, you're going to be paralyzed. And he says, no, I'm not. I'm going to do an Ironman. 
And the doctor's like talking to the parents, you got you to gotta talk some sense into your son. He's never going to walk again. And the son's like, no, I'm going to do an Ironman. And I have, oh, God, I have the freaking chills right now. Wow. And that wow. day, they were out there supporting him doing his Ironman just a year after the fact that he, he you know, wasn't going to make it through the night. And I just remember that moment, like it just happened this morning and thinking, I can do this. And it was, it was this, it wasn't an intellectual decision. It was something from within that was like, not I can do this, but you're going to do this. And so as you get these influences, right, you've got people like Rich Roll in your life, John Joseph, now you've been introduced to us and, and Rob who connected us. He's a, you know, elite age group triathlete himself. And so now, boy, you're like in the stew, right? You got all these endurance <laughs> athletes around you. And then it's like, it starts to become more of a, a norm. Like you're seeing all these people like, well, they're doing it. And, be, you know, this guy's done like 14, 15 of them. And he's, you know, vibrant and happy and everything. But we've all been through the waves of life. But I'll tell you, as somebody who's done, done 10 half Ironmans and four full Ironmans, and I can tell you there's something so incredibly magical about that 140.6. And half Ironman or full Ironman, that distance is going to keep you honest. Going 70.3 miles is going to keep you honest. There's nothing about that day that's easy. Going double that, as Samantha says, is not double. It's so much more than double. But as that direct relationship of the intensity is going to be the self-discovery and the joy that's waiting for you, right? And we need that contrast. And as, as you know, you, you know, you're an East Coast, like you're a, you're a New Yorker. Yes, you grew up in San Diego, right? But you've got that New York in you. And I saw that so much in the movie. And um, you've got that edge to you, right? And so just know that if and, and when you're ready for it, you'll know. And it'll be undeniable. And there won't be a lot of debate. It's just going to happen, and all of a sudden, you're going to find your ass all signed up for a, for an Ironman. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciate that, and it's definitely in the back of my mind. And you know, once I did the seventy point three, I, I, I now I know what the full means. I know that the commitment it is. And and funny, after the race that night, a bunch of the f people that had done fulls they came up and they said the same thing you said. They said. When you finish that full, it's like nothing ever felt. And one, a couple of them had it on video, right on their phone. Like, you have it on demand on your phone? They're like, yeah, this is me. And uh, it's, of course, it's at night, just like you said. I mean, it's a different animal, you know. And uh, and so they lodge that in the back of my head. And um, and so, yeah, it's it's back there. I think I got to see something and gain a respect for something that I probably couldn't have gotten if the full was my only option. And so mm. uh, I also tell people, some people also, they give the quickest, oh, I can't swim. Like I always battle people out. I'm like, that's not true. I'm like, you know, get a swim trainer. You'd be surprised. And so it's just like, get them in the gateway so they can start to appreciate what the, these endurance sports can do for them. And then bring them down the line and then there'll be more people that are aware of this, of this great thing. And, um, yeah, hopefully we're playing a small part of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's funny cause in the movie, I see it unroll within you when John Joseph is like, you know, he challenges you at Sid's bikes, right? He challenges you and immediately, immediately I see the ego come in to protect you from any kind of like spiritual growth. And you're like, no dude, I got London real. I got kids. I got a wife, like all these excuses rolling. And it's so funny because if you look back at that scene, it's not you. It's like this automatic pilot of like these excuses that you know are total bullshit, 
right? It's just, yeah. they're just excuses. And, but in the face of John Joseph, they have no life whatsoever. And it was just really <laughs> cool to see that because I've been there too, right? Like, oh, I'm a crappy runner. I could never do a marathon. You know, one of my best friends is a, uh, like a 65 time marathoner. And I remember when I first met her and we had a dinner together, I remember knowing this about her, that she was a marathoner and, and specifically sitting myself at the other end of the table because I was like, I don't want to know this girl. I don't want to be friends with this girl because I know as soon as she gets my ear, she's going to have me out there running and I'm a crappy right. runner. And then of course, you know, that's, that's down the drain. Um, but it's, there, it's so funny how we have this protective um, mechanism, whether that's the ego. I, I believe it's the ego trying to keep us in that safe zone where, you know, we can kind of still stay in that conflict where we're not really discovering our true power, which is totally limitless. And, and you had mentioned, I don't know if it was um, on the ritual podcast or in the movie, but you talk a little bit about the central governor. And how that mm -hmm. central governor theory coming in of being like, okay, no, I can't go any harder. Right. And that's what yeah. I love about endurance is because you have to override that or you're not going to go any further. Yeah. And I saw that central governor coming in on, on my <laughs> runs and I, and I could actually watch it happen because I had these regular runs and I was like, what are you telling yourself? It's like, I would come up with these random excuses. Oh, your knee hurts. You better take it easy. You didn't actually have enough breakfast and all these things. And then I was like, okay, if I can lie to myself that craftily on a run, where else in my life am I lying to myself about all my other things, all my other BS, my relationships, my career. And we have an academy here at London Real as well. So I see students all the time that, like you said, they tell a story to themselves oh, I can't do this because I blah, blah, blah. So for me, it's since bikes. I'm like, oh, I have a show. I'm 47 years old. I have kids. It's And then John's like, no, you make time. I know a guy who's a firefighter. You make time if it's important to you. And it's like it's about trying to interrupt people and say, you know, you are the easiest person in the whole world to fool, fooling yourself. And your subconscious has this, like you said, protection mechanism. It's almost that central governor theory working because it sees uh, the – the unknown as the only potential risks that could hurt us. And yet our frontal cortex knows that to live a fulfilling life, we must go out there and take these risks. And so I think that's all life is, is just a battle with your own central governor, whether it's a physical or a spiritual or an emotional one. And so it's just constantly checking yourself. Now, how can you do that through, as even John said, a daily practice, you know, meditation, training, mindset and it's it's a constant battle and i'm i'm sure i'm fighting it myself even with the full i'm probably fighting my central governor theory right now as far as saying now is not the right time and so um yeah it's it's something we battle with and the guy that said that in the movie is ross edgley and he just uh completed something called the great british swim here he swam around great britain in 157 days consecutively never touching land and uh, <laughs> yeah, I know it's, it's almost 2000 miles. He would swim something like 17 miles a day, um, eating 15,000 calories a day. And he finished on Sunday. He came here on Monday and we talked again about the central governor theory. And, you know, he's just like, Brian, I was out there and I got it too. But he's like, I didn't have a choice because I had two tides a day and I had to swim every 12 hours and it was getting cold. And in the winter, I can't get across Scotland. He said, so I, I battled my central governor theory with a schedule that I couldn't let up on. So you know, whatever it takes for you to beat your own central governor theory. For me, it was a movie. The world's watching. John Joseph's on my back. And May 20th, I got to be there. Otherwise, I'm really going to let down a lot of people. That That's what got me over the edge. Whatever it is for you, um, maybe sometimes just signing up is enough to get it done. But 
yeah, you just got to try to win that battle every day. I remember um, Nicole DeBoom, who's her husband, Tim, is a two-time world champion, and, and she's an Ironman champion, and she's just a great woman. She's out of Boulder, Colorado, and I remember her telling me very early on in my endurance sports career that the first thing you do is you sign up for the Ironman, and then the second thing you do is you tell everybody you know, <laughs> because now you have accountability, right? Yeah. And we're yeah. all, so as long as we're in a body... We're going to have, uh, we're going to be, we are going to be subject to the waves. We're going to be subject to the thoughts. We're going to be subject to the doubt and all of that. And if you, if we can start to look at the mind and everything that it shoots us at us as just kind of a sifting and sorting process, that's kind of how I look at it. I look at like my brain as being a, like a colander, like a, and, and it's really fine. Like I'm trying to sift flour, you know, and if I just gently kind of tap it, and I see, and I just imagine that what comes out the bottom and it's just so pure and it's so soft and that's my truth. And then everything else is kind of getting clogged up. I don't need that, that, that I can just like dump. But I just think about all of that is not so much as this like pressure of like, oh my God, my mind. I'm like, I'm just sifting and sorting. I'm just sifting and sorting and seeing what feels true and what feels good. Because if it feels good, then go. And if it doesn't yeah. feel good, what is it calling me? What is it calling forth from within me? What is it calling? Am I fearful, right? I used to live in a lot of fear. Okay. Well, that made me realize that the fear that I was living from was actually keeping me from living. So it was calling forth this life. And it's scary to get to the other side of it. But there's so many people, and that's what I love so much about these mediums that, that you and I share, that we all share, is that we're sharing these stories of people who have gotten to the other side of whatever it looks like, heroin, trauma, you know, lost pregnancies, whatever it may be, that we've all come up to these walls that just feel so big and truthful. But we realize that there's, at the top of the wall, right, not even on the other side, but once you get to the top of it, you start to get the view, and that view is like nothing you could ever manufacture. It's just so beautiful. And jumping from that point over to the other side, that's a piece of cake. But it's from the bottom. When you look up to the top, that's the work, right? When the, sh yeah. when, when, the like when the shit hits the fan. We were just doing this live video in our team page. And I said, you know, when the shit hits the fan, that's where the rubber meets the road. You can have 100% faith. Like, I can cross that finish line. When you're nailing your times and your body feels great, but when you're out there and your body feels horrible and you didn't eat enough for breakfast and you're starting to get like the shakes from not having enough sugar in your body, can you still have the faith? Can you still have the unshakable belief that you're going to get to that finish line? You're going to crush that race. And I think that's, that's the iron mind. To me, that's yeah. the iron mind. You know, when, when we look at iron... You know, it, it's, it's a metal that's found here on this earth, and, but it's a, it makes up a very big portion of the earth's outer core and inner core. And I think the outer core is like our armor, right? Our armor of like pushing through the world. But if we can get a little bit of crack in that armor, it will open us up to that iron and that strength that's really deep within our inner core. And in my experience, that's the iron mind 
piece that we really want to start living and sifting and sorting so that we can, um, that can become our our norm. So when the central governor shows up, it's like, what? This is a crazy thought. <laughs> this is a nut. I, I, this is nuts. I love your iron analogy. I'm going to steal it. I hope you don't mind. No, steal it. Because <laughs> it's perfect. But, um, you know, there, there's no, it's no coincidence that everybody that sits in the leather chair here at London Real Studios, uh, you know, I don't want to talk about your wins. I want to talk about the, the darkest days and your comeback. So, you know, uh, on Tuesday, I had I had a four-star general, General Stanley McChrystal, and I talked all about his wins, and then I talked about him being summoned to the White House and fired by President Obama, 34 years in the Army, and he said, Brian, I was like an out-of-body experience. He's like, I, 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 was, I, I didn't even know how to process this. I'm walking out of the White House. And not only that, I've been publicly sacked for, for lack of loyalty. He said, that's something that I cherished above anything in the world. And now everyone thinks I'm a disloyal, um, you know, uh, a soldier. He said, that's the worst. And he got home to his wife and she said one thing to him. She said, we've always been happy and we always will be happy. And he said, she could have said, oh, you got screwed, you this. She said, she set the tone for their future life. And now eight years later, he's like, he's completely happy. And he's like, Brian, I always think people are going to meet me and say, oh, you're the guy that got fired by Obama. And he said, he said, you know what they say? They said, oh, you're in the army, right? He said, we build these big things up about what people are going to say about our quote unquote failures. But in reality, they're kind of these, these, these events and dramas in our own life that we have to process. And so I always go into these, like you said, these super dark moments to see if you can come back and then when you can, and like you said, it's this, this massive magnitude and, and that's the whole human experience. And we all experience that on some level and whether it's, uh, John Joseph's, uh, sexual abuse or my overdose or your whatever, it's all just as valid and just as important and everyone goes through it. And that's the thing you see people that are successful or with money or blah, blah, blah. They all have their own darkness that they're working on and processing and will continue to as well. So um, hopefully that connects us. So what did you, what did you learn about yourself from this experience of this really intense 90 day transformation? Like, what did you, what, what is the big takeaway for you? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, after the whole thing, you know, uh, the, the biggest thing I realized was that, you know, I can actually put my mind to things that I didn't think I could do and, and just get them done. Um, and so for me, it's just opened up a whole lot, load of possibilities of things that I might say no to. And now I've just kind of proven to myself that, that this can be done. And the other thing it taught me was this, and you asked me a good question earlier, like, why do all of this at once? And I remember being in New York City and thinking to myself, oh, do I really want to do this? I'm like, I got all of these things. I got John on my case. I got this story I'm coming out with. I got 90 days. I got Samantha Murphy. I mean, she's no cakewalk, you know, and so, and I, and I got to eat plants. And I'm just thinking, but, but if you, if you put all of this risk in this one thing, think about the potential reward. And so the one thing it taught me was, is to take more risk. And that's been always my, my weak point in my life. I mean, if you look at my life, you'd be like, well, I guess you took risk, but I was trained at MIT as an engineer and as engineers, they teach us to build bridges that don't fall down and build planes that don't fall out of the sky. And so what we end up doing in our personal lives, many engineers is we engineer risk out of our life. And that's, maybe that's another way of, of being scared as you would put it. 
And so for me now, with everyone around here and with everything we do in the future, I'm like, how can we put more risk in our lives, in the project, in the business? Because that's the only way we're going to get these big payoffs. And so I could have fallen flat on my face on that race. I could have had a bike accident in my training. I mean, that would have really messed up everything we were doing here. But I also thought at the same time, life is about taking more risk than you think you can handle and then going for that quote unquote big reward. And I'm sure we make five more movies. Two of them aren't going to work out how we wanted. But then again, maybe there would be some great lesson in here if I didn't finish this. I'm sure it would have made a bad movie. But if you look at fighters, they always say they learn the most with their losses as hard they, as they are to swallow. So I think that's what I learned is, is just to take more risk, have some more faith, um, and then try to see the bigger picture. What looks like a, a loss is sometimes a win. What looks like a win is sometimes a loss. <laughs> so uh, that's what I learned about money. It looked like a win, but it actually was alienating me and keeping me in this unhappy job, trying to get this digit that would show up in my bank account that had no correlation with um, me as a human being. So um, yeah. trying to take all of that stuff in stride and then just keep doing things for the right reasons trying to put out great messages, connect with people, uh, listen to people, trying to be more present, trying to be a better father, all that stuff's kind of come out. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of lessons, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's, but it's really you know, the, the risk is something that we're, we're really not encouraged to take, right? It's, I think it's really a part of our social programming. And then you being an engineer and being trained as an engineer, that social programming was very much ingrained, you know, in the neural pathways in the brain. And we know that like these belief systems are flowing through the neural pathways, right? Law of facilitation. Once a set of neurons goes down a particular path, it gets easier every time. And, but as you know, we can change that. We can, we can create new neural pathways that our automatic behavior can now be, let's take risks. And so we can look at risk as excitement, or we can look at it as like, holy shit, that's so fearful. But when we take risk, we, rock, we walk into the unknown. And what I know about the unknown is that that's where all our potential lies. There's no potential in the physical evidence. This see it to believe it attitude is like, oh, that is of the days past. That is just, it's just steeped in limitation. Yeah. But I understand how scary it is to take risks. I mean, when we look at our life together over 20 years together, we had been taking little risks here and there and there and there. And it was all preparing us to take the biggest risk of our life, which was Yogi Triathlete. And as much as it just tore us down to like just the core, to the point where I had to surrender and say, you know what? If you need me to live in a cardboard box, I'll live in a freaking cardboard box. Like, I'll do that, and I'll be grateful that I have a cardboard box. And it was the moment that I got torn down to that point of complete surrender that everything started to shift. Everything started to shift. And, and it's still shifting, and the physical is still catching up. But to, to walk into something without having that physical evidence, I really think that's the definition of risk. If we can start to believe and program these pathways in our brain that risk is where our potential lies, that's a really exciting way to live. You know, and it's like John, John talks about the Vedas and the parallel lives, right? So we talk, you know, like people will say like past life or future life. 
But it's all kind of how it's all actually happening. If we look at like the real deep spirituality and the teachings, it's all actually happening right now. This is the most important one and how we're responding to this life and sifting and sorting and relating to that central governor and that protection that's hardwired in us to survive as human beings is really affecting the, the vibration or the energy of the path of the past, healing the past. And it's really setting forward the trajectory of the future. And so it's really just this life that we need to pay attention to. It's the most evident one to us in this existence, but it's, it's all in that response, you know, like when, and I'm sure that as you take risks that you're not immune to being like, Oh boy, here comes another risk. But we have a choice to start to program ourselves to be excited about that risk and doing what you did in 90 days. That was a big risk because you could have totally quote unquote failed. If, if failure even exists, I have no idea. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's so true. And it's given me a real appreciation for taking that risk. And, you know, respect to the two of you for going in and, and doing what you're doing, because I know it's hard. And, you know, one of my uh, guests, his name is Ryan Holiday, and he wrote a book called The Obstacle is the Way, and it's tattooed on one of his arms. And I always think that, you know, and when I come across the same struggles, I'm sure you're going through and go through, you know, it's like, what am I doing? This is so hard and I'm doing something great and my message is pure and I'm helping people. Isn't this supposed to be easier? But it's like, no, the obstacle is the way and it's building your character every day. And um, this it's supposed to be hard. I mean, that's that's why not everyone else is doing it. You know, I think it was like somebody once told me you get paid twice for your work. There's potentially a wage. And then there's also just just that you get paid for just doing the work. You know, and sometimes it's just about doing the work and being appreciative. I mean, sometimes things are, you know, sometimes I'll do three guests in, in a row and it's just like that was crazy. But I'm also I've just pushed myself and passed these tests and it feels so alive and. You got to kind of just cherish that stuff. So that's the phrase I go back to. Yeah, well, in everything is currency. So that was a huge piece for me changing my relationship to money is that everything is currency. So when you're doing three guests in a row, there's so much currency being exchanged. Currency just isn't dollars. Currency is, yeah. is exchange of energy and wisdom and connection. And, and um, it's just such a beautiful way to start to look at currency outside of the bank account and realize that we're exchanging currency all the time. Um, and the currency of connection, I think, is invaluable. And you said, I heard you say something about how as you created more connection, and we talked about this earlier, where you're feeling like, I just felt disconnected that as you created more connection, right? And London Real is such a beautiful way to create connection in your life. These disconnected behaviors fell away, right? Like the the drugs fell away in your seeking of connection. And even uh, the alcohol, right? Like, I don't know if you're still practicing an alcohol-free life, but- I am actually, yeah. That it just kind of falls away. It's weird. It was, it it really, I really was, was feeling disconnected. And I, and then of course my behaviors got me more disconnected. And I don't think there's anything scarier as a human than not being part of this human experience. And, and so London Real connected me. And I found that as I continued to go into that connection, and it was the direct connection of talking with people just like you on my show, and then the people that would watch it and be inspired by the energy and then see me and send messages and that whole feeling like I was part of also the solution and part of this, this one organism of humanity, 
I just noticed that I was having these great people in my life and then a great relationship. And then I would not do the stupid things I would used to do more positive behavior. And every year I just get stronger and stronger. So then, like you said, you look at the the work or the, the whatever, the revenue, but what about the energy that I'm getting and pushing out there? And so, yeah, this year I, I stopped drinking January 1st, which was kind of just surprising, but it was just like, you know what, that's this la one of these last habits that I'm just like, I don't even need to be doing this, whether it's getting in the way or not really, I'm just like, you know what? And so that's probably been in the works for seven years, you know, of doing all this stuff. But now I feel like I have the power to just do that. And you know, if I keep doing these things, who knows what I'll be doing in five more years, you know, I don't know, I'll be levitating. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. But, uh, that's quite but, possible. Uh, that's, that's, that's way of getting kind of paid. Like I said, I think money is energy and I think all this stuff is energy that's flowing around. And so I always tell people here, you know, we, I, I get them to focus on revenues, but I'm like, that's capital. And that's kind of capital to be, to, to, to allow us to create these movies and to create more experiences that just move more people and then it flows back to us and we throw it out there. And so I try to look at money in a different way than I used to do back in the banking world where it was something I just hoarded and accumulated and parked somewhere. Now we take it and we invest it back in. And so I try to constantly be getting this in, this energy flowing. And I feel like the biggest winner because I get to sit in that room with these people. I get to go meet John Joseph and do all that. So. I'm, I'm always super grateful. Um, and it gets me through those hard times, which we all face as new media people, entrepreneurs. I mean, what you're doing and what we're doing, it's never really been done before. So this is kind of like pioneer stuff. Like, how do you do this? How do you do this? And so, um, you know, you know, we, people will look back on us under a hundred years time and be like, well, you know, you know, you're kind of like Columbus a little bit. You're out there in this new space. You're trying to make this revenue model work. Is it this? Is it that? What is it? How does it work? How do we build a community online? And it's, it's, it's stuff that we're doing groundbreaking work and I think it should be hard. So it's always good to remember that. Yeah. And you know what, what you were just describing is actually like a universal law. It's the law of circulation, the law of giving and receiving so that everything is always in circulation. We don't have to hoard anything. We don't have to park our money. Everything yeah. is, is always in circulation. We all, we live in an ocean of motion since we began our conversation to right now, there's cells that are birthing and dying and dividing in your body. Right. Things are always changing, always changing. And so this idea, this, it's really a paranoia idea that we have to like hoard and park our money. It's like the more you give, the more you're going to receive, the more you give, the more it's all in this direct, it's, it's a universal law. You cannot, you cannot override it. But if yeah. we have to let go of that fear and that constriction, we have to stop white knuckling the wheel of life. And when we can stop white knuckle, because I used to white knuckle that thing, holy crap that I white knuckle it. <laughs> and once I started to let go of it, that's when I realized that I could breathe and that the, the flow was always there. And so, okay, alcohol free, Iron Man metal, um, plant-based. Let's talk about the plant-based because I hear you're still practicing a plant-based diet. Yeah. So I'm still plant-based. You know, a lot of people thought I would go out for a steak and a beer after Chattanooga. But if I mean, first of all, John Joseph would have tried to choke me out. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if he'd win, but he'd try. So, but I would, for me, like I, I, for me, I embraced the whole lifestyle and I liked how I felt and I liked what I was doing. And so for me, it wasn't like I wasn't allowed to do these things. So I was going to binge on them at the end. For me, I was just like, 
I was just so happy to be there. So I decided a couple months earlier that I wasn't going to do some kind of celebration. It just didn't seem to, for me, the race was the celebration in a weird way. So, um, and I was just like, you know what? Um, I had a guest on my show named Jocko Willink. He's a Navy SEAL and um, he has an expression which is discipline equals freedom. And so for me, I said, I need a good reason to change what is working for me. And I was like, I need a good reason to stop eating a plant-based diet and I don't have one right now. And, and this discipline has given me freedom. I didn't have a single injury in my 90, 90 days of training, which doesn't make sense. I mean, I was pounding the pavement. 22, 25, 30 kilometer runs, like that's crazy and nothing. And John told me that. He said, you're gonna recover faster. And I was like, yeah, right. Um, but it did. And so I was like, you know what? I'm gonna stick with this because it's working. I feel great and I'm gonna stay on it. So I'm still on it. Um, I promised myself I'm gonna do it for the rest of the year and then I'm gonna evaluate. But I feel great. And once you get in the process, it's not only doable, it's really enjoyable. I feel great. I've gained some weight since the Ironman because I'm not doing so much endurance and I'm about four kilos heavier and, and I'm doing different movement practices, but I feel great on it. And in London and with my, with my wife, it's, it's great. I was, you know, traveling, you know, it's always a little more of a challenge, but it's doable. So, uh, I'm really enjoying it. And, uh, that's been my my feel. I've had a lot of guests on London Real that talk about this too. So it wasn't like I wasn't surrounded by great ideas like Dr. Michael Greger and Rich Roll and all these people and people that didn't agree. Um, you know, like people that were in the movie as well. Yeah, he was uh, great. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, he, he was great. You know, Charles Policon, he was perfect. Um, and again, that stuff just happened in the middle of the movie. And I just happened to just come back from New York and I mentioned to Policon and he was the perfect bad guy uh, when it came to, you know, talking about that stuff. So, um, we just wanted to promote this discussion with people and to have them ask them their own questions. And I think everybody should try different things out. I think everybody should try endurance sports, try a plant-based diet, try these things and see how it makes you feel. But you got to commit to something. Otherwise, you, you won't necessarily follow Yes, the wishy-washiness. Like the wishy-washiness, yeah. you're never really going to get that full, pers be able to, to really form like a solid perspective. Like the strength coach that was like impossible on a vegan diet. Yeah. Like he had a lot of confidence in that and he has every right to have his perspective. And then John Joseph's like bullshit, bullshit, right? And a hundred percent confidence. And you know, we're living it. I've never felt better. We get blood work every year. You know, I've, this will be my third ultra this, you know, in six months in, you know, I can't remember the last time I had an injury. And of course, it's not a guarantee. I don't want to say like you get on a plant-based diet, you're never going to get sick. However, I can't tell you that I cannot remember. It's been so many years since I've had a cold. And I, I do also believe that it's the recipe of life. It's the meditation. It's the deep inner work, whatever that looks like for you. It is the endurance sports um, and the at 46 years old recovering just as hard as I go out and do my tempo runs, you know, like really taking recovery and holding that in reverence. I noticed that, you know, sleep is, is really, really important. Now the day after an Ironman, you know, we, we went for a, we, he did Ironman Boulder and the next day we went out for a trail run. I mean, that's insane. And like, I have him like climbing <laughs> yeah. a mountain, you know, that's insane. So, um, so I've heard you've gotten some, uh, some plant-based cookbooks, but I'm not sure you have our plant-based cookbook. I, I, I don't I'm think guilty, you've so got the high, high vibe recipes. 
for the I, athlete appetite. I'm grabbing one of those for my missus right after yeah, this call. Yeah, you got to get the Yogi Triathlete cookbook in your repertoire because this thing was born from the two of us coming home from like six hour workouts and being like, what do we have to eat? What do we have to eat? And I think it's really a testament to having those staples in the house, the lentils, the rice, the, you know, the, the um, hummus, the tempeh, all that stuff. And, you know, these recipes were, most of them were really born from that. We have a lot of great reviews of people who are meat eaters that love it too. So you might want to check it out. It's on Amazon, Yogi Triathlete Cookbook. Um, and maybe there's I'm some currency it. in there I'm for you it. to receive. <laughs> Cool, I'm on it. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'll grab one. You're, you're making me hungry just mentioning all those ingredients. I know. So. Well, and I appreciate it because you've already had a full day because it's noon here. We're in San Diego, by the way. We're in your stomping grounds. I know. Grounds. Carl's, Carlsbad, Carlsbad, right? Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. My, so my dad's in Del Mar and I went to Torrey Pines High School my last two years. Yeah. So That's so wild. Figure. Yeah. Go figure. My mom, I grew up kind of Pacific Beach and yeah. that kind of thing. So yeah, I was there till I was 18. I know it well. I don't come back very often, but yeah, I know the whole vibe. I mean, it's, it's beautiful out there. Well, and know? I love how like you were like, I got to get out of San Diego. And we grew I grew up in Cape Cod and BJ grew up just south of the Cape. And so, you know, we're, we're Bostonians by, by, um, by our heritage. And it was like, we got to get the hell out of New England. Like we got to get out. And so I get that too. <laughs> yeah, for us it was like, oh, getting to San yeah. Diego, like oh the guaranteed sun. The expansiveness, and, yeah. yeah, and the sun and like yeah, and we're still traumatized too. by New England winters. Yeah, I mean I got four years in of New England winters and that was no and summers. I used to I mean August in Boston was brutal. Um and yeah, so I got it. We I got it pretty big, so I know what you're talking about. And you know, and again culture too, I get it too. So uh I always have some love for Boston, but I know it can be brutal. So I think everyone has to find the city that is their energy. For me, London is it. I'm going to be here for a long time. Uh, it just suits me in many ways. And it's always been good to me. New York kicked my ass and London has always been, I don't know, something that vibes with me. So, uh, I'm going to be gotta here, check yeah. out London. I'm going to, we have an, uh, we have an athlete racing Ironman Cork in June. Uh, which um, is yeah. still open, by the way. Um, <laughs> but I'm going to be there. I've got some very good friends that live in Dublin, and I'm thinking about hopping over to London and check it out. I've never been there, and I, I think it's pretty close and pretty feasible to do that. Yeah, so. you'll love it. It's an amazing, it's an amazing city. It's, it's, it's so different than, say, 20 years ago. It's, I think it's the greatest city in the world. Um, I'll take it over New York any day. It's, it's just it's, – it's, it's got great vibrancy and great fun, but it's not overwhelming, and it's got great culture, and it's very multicultural. I mean, you'll hear all these different languages. You'll see, you know, everything here, and I feel like people are okay to be themselves here, uh, whereas I feel like sometimes in New York, everyone kind of assimilates to be a New Yorker. But here you'll get Russians and you'll have a woman walk down the street in a burqa and she doesn't care what you think. And and then there'll be a Russian and a Brazilian and they're all like just they're being themselves. So it's a oh, fun. I love it. Yeah, I got to check city. it out. And I hear it's very vegan friendly. I hear it's a totally. great. I mean, I'm, we're in Shoreditch here, which is kind of the East Village of, of London. And so I got tons of options around it. We just had Nimai Delgado, the bodybuilder here, yeah. and he, he was on and he's got a great story as well. And he was just loving the restaurants around here. So tons of options here. Cool. Uh, I mean, yeah. yeah awesome. I love it. And, um, so how can people find out more about London Real and watch Iron Mind? Because everybody oh, yeah. that listens to this needs to watch Iron Mind. 
Oh, thank you so much. Well, so the movie's the movie's free. I just want as many people to see it as possible. Um, they can go to londonreel.tv, which is our website. It actually has all of our episodes as well. And uh, it's londonreel.tv forward slash iron mind. Like you said, iron like in the earth's core and on the surface and mind. Um, and yeah, it's there to watch. Uh, it's like a Facebook login or an email login and it's there. All of our full episodes are there as well. And we've got the, all this behind the scenes content as well. So I've got the full me and John walking around the East Village. We have the full conversation in the Hare Krishna temple. We have all of this extra content um, as well. And yeah, we just, we, th there was a lot of tears in the audience and the theater. And a lot of people said, my brother needs to see this and my cousin needs and my aunt needs to see this. So we just want as many people to see it as possible. And for people just to, yeah, hopefully see it and see something in themselves they can learn from. So uh, that's what we're doing. And yeah, London Real, we publish every week. We just have fascinating people on the show. Yeah, we're all over YouTube. Um, we're on iTunes, but if you go to your YouTube search bar and type in London Real, it will probably serve you up the perfect episode that allies with your interests, whether it be veganism, Iron Man, uh, boxing, whatever it is, we, we try to have everyone on the show that has a great story again and tells us about the human experience. Um, so Iron Mind is really the same ethos. We approach our show as well. So that's that. And then we have a whole academy on the other side where we actually take students through transformative experiences and teach them how to start their own podcasts, create businesses, publicly speak. And that's when we really push people through their own central governor theory. And so I have a lot of experience with people doing what I did in Sid's bike shop and saying, no, Brian, I could never start a business. I could never start a podcast. I can't speak publicly. And I'm like, yep, I heard this before. I did it myself. And so we try to get them to the next level. So I love us. it. That's amazing. And then I've got one final question for you, Brian. What is Iron Mind to you? What, is that, what does that mean to you? You know, the title Iron Mind just kind of came out after we got back from seeing John in New York City. You know, we were going to call it the vegan Iron Man and it didn't sound cool and it sounded silly. And then one day just someone said Iron Mind and we were like, wow. And I, I think it's kind of what you said. It's like it's it's this it's this metal that, you know, we know is very hard, but it's not just that. And it's it's like what what can you do with your mind to make it uh to make it to where you can go through those things that, that normally you wouldn't be able to handle, you wouldn't be able to process. And that could be a challenge, that could be a, a relationship, a business or something, but it's kind of this theory that we all can have this iron mind um, and that we're not born with it and that we can kind of create it ourselves. So that's what the movie means to me and hopefully it means that to other people as well. Awesome. 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 Thank you Thanks, so much. This has been a great connection. I'm psyched to have you on the show and to share you with our community. And I know our audience is just going to eat up every word of this conversation because it's plant-based, it's Ironman training, it's the mind, and it's, you know, it's real authentic life stuff and that sifting and sorting that I believe we're all here to learn how to do and get more skillful at. Well, thank you so much. You two were born to broadcast. You guys have amazing energy, so you got to keep doing this. I mean, this is an amazing conversation, and uh, you know, it's probably one of the deepest and realest ones I've had. So keep doing what you're doing because this is powerful stuff, and people can tell when they're listening to this. You know, they can t they can feel your energy. I believe that sometimes audio is even more powerful than video, and if people just listen with their eyes closed, they're gonna hear you and your passion, and 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 you and all of, of your accomplishments and all these major Ironmans you've done. So. Yeah, I, I really appreciate both of you. So thank you very much. Awesome.
What did you guys think? I hope you loved it as much as we did. Brian is so easy to talk to, and he's putting out such beautiful work into the world. So definitely check out the show notes for this episode at yogitriathlete.com and find ways to connect with Brian, London Real, watch the show, get into the academy, and definitely, definitely watch Iron Mind. We've got links to the Ritual podcast that we referenced, as well as Brian's TED Talk, and of course, our convo with the passionate John Joseph and Brian's convo with the passionate John Joseph. Thank you so much for tuning in, for supporting the show, and I want to give a special shout out to Ed and Charlene Sylvester, who are the latest to proclaim their support on Patreon. As Brian said, you guys, this work is important. We're creating more connection in the world, and you, when I say we, it's you. Like, we are all a part of it. You are a part of it. This collective, I mean, and those callings in our heart are there because they represent our truth. There is always more room to bring our heart, to bring love into what we are doing, whether that is because our job allows us to do what we love or because we're actually doing what we love. But we first must be awake to our truth in order to bring more of this forth into the world. If we're seeking short-term relief through the wine glass or the crack pipe or the bank balance or the I'll be happy when mindset, it's a dead end street, my friends, and it leads to the life breath of misery. It's the look inside. It's the face in the mirror. It's the behind the eyes where our connection and our fulfillment is found. So why not right now? Take a chance on the great unveiling of you.